Welcome to Globally Minded Medicine, a podcast of quick reviews and helpful tips on medical topics, cultures, customs, and sustainable practices that are applicable at home and abroad. The opinions expressed are our own and do not represent those of our schools or our employers and are not meant for medical advice. It's just a little education and global exploration. Welcome back to Globally Minded Medicine. Today, we are going to be talking about another neglected tropical disease, uh, specifically Dracunculiasis. And joining me today is Brogan Crockett. Hey, thanks, Dr. Mark. Uh, it's welcome. an honor to be on the show. I'm excited to be here and uh, talking about one of my interests, infectious disease, uh, specifically Dracunculiasis, uh, otherwise known as guinea worm. Yeah. So I've always found it hard to say that particular disease, Dracunculiasis. Anyway, so, but we'll give it a go today. Uh, but yeah, guinea worm disease is the other way to, to say it, right? So, how about you give us a little bit of background on uh, guinea worm disease? Yeah, so to begin, uh, to understand the background here of dracunculiasis, this parasitic, parasitic infection has plagued humanity for thousands of years and is caused by the nematode Dracunculus metanensis. Uh, it used to be found in several different continents across the world. However, through eradication efforts, uh, through many different organizations, it's now primarily located in rural communities, uh, especially those that are affected by poverty, uh, mostly concentrated in uh, Africa, in countries such as Chad and Mali. If it's really becoming so concentrated and limited, why do we still want to know about it? Why is it so crucial still? Yeah, well, this has been around for a really long time. Um, if we don't stay on prevention efforts or eradication efforts, then it could potentially come back. Uh, there's actually been an increasing number of uh, dracunculiasis or guinea worm infections in uh, domesticated animals, dogs and cats, uh, which could potentially lead to uh, reinfecting humans if we're not careful. But however, that due to the increasing cases, that may be because there's been an increase in surveillance for guinea worm. Uh, so we just need to make sure that we're staying on top of it in order to fully eradicate it. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I know in both Chad and Ethiopia, at one point, they thought they were actually disease-free, but there was a resurgence. You know, that was back in the early part of this century. And, uh, and so just, again, going with what you were just saying, importance of learning about it and continuing to work and control it so that it doesn't, doesn't come back. And, and now understanding that there's animal vectors as well, and it's not just affecting humans, that, that's been a big issue. So um, let's start with transmission as far as understanding guinea worm. How is guinea worm disease uh, transmitted? Guinea worm is primarily found in copepods, which are like little tiny crustaceans in freshwater sources. And those, that's where it starts out. Uh, they host the infective larvae, uh, which is then consumed by humans. And once it's been consumed by humans, uh, it crosses the GI lining and migrates into the abdominal cavity, uh, into the connective tissues, proceeds to uh, grow, and can get up to a meter in length over a year. So both male and female larvae are ingested. They do cross the GI barrier, uh, but after they mate, the males typically die and it's the females that can grow up to a meter in length. And then after about a year or so, the they can happen anywhere on the body, but primarily in the lower extremities, the worm migrates down specifically underneath the skin. And after about 24 to 72 hours, 
ruptures through the skin, causing a really painful blister and burning sensation, which coincidentally, people tend to try and seek relief by immersing their foot in water and therefore further spreading and propagating this disease um, as the female is, I'll quote unquote, activated, releasing other larvae uh, into the freshwater source. Wow. Yeah. So fairly complex life cycle there. And it's interesting how that pain has the host seek relief through water and thus propagating the, uh, the transmission cycle. That's super, super interesting. And so they're completely symptom free, basically, in that first year. They'll be mostly, mostly symptom free uh, until the skin ruptures. And then we're worried about a secondary bacterial infection from the skin being open. Uh, and so at that point, that's when we may be treating uh, or giving prophylactic antibiotics. So I think that's super helpful when, you know, when we understand the life cycle, it helps us to know where to target our eradication efforts, which we're going to get to later, right? Yep. But um, so you started talking about treatment and mentioned antibiotics, right, in order to prevent secondary infection. What specific treatment for draconucleosis is there? So guinea worm is really unique in the fact that uh, it doesn't typically respond to a lot of the antiparasitics. So there are no medications that we can give. There's no prophylaxis. There's no vaccines that we can give. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the big emphasis here is with a lot of these other not neglected tropical diseases is uh, prevention. And so with that, if somebody does become infected and subsequently has the worm that ruptures the skin of the lower extremities, it's preventing them from infecting other people, infecting the water sources and protecting the water sources. And so really it's supportive care for these patients, which could be excruciating during that time. It can take up to eight and a half weeks, but as the worm is slowly being removed, you can wrap it, uh, wrap it around some gauze, wrap it around a small stick. Uh, so a lot of the pictures and videos that you know I saw when I was researching this uh, they were slowly twisting the worm around a stick, like really careful not to rupture it or to break it. Because if they break it, they could kill the worm and then that could lead to an infection, which could be fatal uh, and catastrophic for the host. So, I mean, subsequently, we also take into consideration the social determinants of health here, uh, where it's specifically affecting those populations that are rural or poverty stricken. Um, if they have these on their lower extremities, then they're subsequently dealing with a disability. And that disability uh, could prevent them from taking care of their families, uh, attending work and preventing them from having an income. And so that really is putting them out and can lead to some other longer term sequelae for the eight and a half weeks or so on average uh, that it takes to remove the worm. Um, and even after the worm is removed, there may be some residual sequelae uh, afterwards, uh, just because the body's not able to fully return to normal. I imagine during that whole painful, prolonged extraction process, uh, they're not going to work, right? They're not going to school. So like you said, um, at the beginning, actually, you mentioned that this really, it is a disease of poverty. It hits countries that have been devastated by war and conflict, uh, rural areas where they tend to be low resource, hard to get clean, filtered water, right? And so it's already a disease of poverty, but then the disease itself, because they can't work during this time period, causes 
more poverty. It perpetuates the whole poverty cycle. So it really can be devastating for the individual, for the community, for the, their family. Yeah. So there's a big public health responsibility there to try and combat this guinea worm just so that we can prevent further propagation of poverty in these communities. Yeah. So how is that effort being carried out? What what are they doing to control guinea worm? Fortunately, a lot of efforts have been made uh, through the World Health Organization, various non-GMOs, and uh, the Carter Center, which was spearheaded and started by former president uh, Jimmy Carter. They play a crucial role in these initiatives, whether that's surveillance, disease tracking, preventative measures, uh, identifying communities that are at risk. Uh, So according to some uh, recent statistics, in 2022, there was 206,852 false reports. So with each of those reports, they had to send somebody to investigate or they investigated themselves. Um, and through a lot of mitigation efforts, whether that's education with the communities that live near these water sources, making sure there's no stagnant water. Um, it's through also digging wells and protecting these water sources, providing filters, education on how to treat their water, um, and thoroughly cooking any uh, aquatic animals they may be eating that come from the water itself. And speaking of statistics, actually, uh, there's been a steady decline, basically, you know, since the 1990s, um, and even for the last five or so years, with 2019 excluded, there's been less than 50 cases reported. Uh, so in 2019, that's our exclusion, there was 54 cases reported worldwide through the World Health Organization. And then in 2022, we were down to 13 reported cases. Uh, so that's just been steadily decreasing every year. So, I mean, it's it's apparent. It's very obvious and very apparent that these mitigation efforts are working, but we can't give up uh, our efforts just so quick. You know, we need to make sure that this isn't something that comes back. Yeah, exactly. I think I think a lot of people say, oh, wow, we only have 13 cases in 2022. This thing's almost gone. Uh, our cost should be going down, all of that. But that surveillance and continued education and community engagement that you're talking about to help keep it controlled so that it really does get eradicated. That's so huge um, and it takes so much effort. So there's quite a bit of cost still required. Even once we get zero cases worldwide, that needs to be monitored for years before they're finally saying, okay, I think it's eradicated and we're getting close, but, uh, but yeah, we definitely don't wanna let off the gas, right? Yeah, it's important with these neglected tropical diseases uh, to remember that they can also have other uh, quote unquote vectors or other hosts. Uh, So like I had stated earlier is that, you know, there are increasing numbers in domesticated animals, Mm -hmm. um, which is something that we need to be aware of, even though the human uh, infection rate has fallen. So this is almost like a close to being a success story for global eradication efforts and public health efforts in preventing the spread of this disease. Very exciting effort. They've they've really done a terrific job and we just hope that it continues forward and uh, and we're able to completely control it and uh, and eradicate it. So thanks so much, Brogan, for bringing this topic to the podcast. Is there anything else you want to say? To sum it up, uh, cases have been steadily declining through mitigation efforts and education to these communities. It is a disease that primarily affects rural and poverty-stricken areas uh, in Africa and can be incredibly painful. And with the symptoms, it just propagates further infections 
through seeking relief uh, for their burning pain and the ulcer that's created uh, through the worm emerging in the foot. So a pretty good story with uh, reduction in case numbers. And I, thanks for bringing me on the show. And I really appreciate it. And especially being able to talk about infectious diseases and tropical diseases, something I'm really passionate about. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, the more knowledge and understanding that we get in these areas, not only help us to fight guinea worm disease, but but all neglected tropical diseases. So the more, the better. And you're going to wrap up the whole episode with uh, with our closing poem, right? Yep. I'm going to turn it over to you. If thinking of guinea worm, a parasitic curse, emerges from blisters, making lives worse, then you might be globally minded. Perfect. Stay globally minded, my friends.